Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy news for conservatives today. And we do want to start with a couple of things before we get to the martinis. First of all, uh, I want to let you know, thank you all for your questions for our Q&A specials. We have recorded those, and those will be posted next week. What's happening is, is that I had a vacation scheduled for June. They got derailed by COVID, and it's rescheduled for next week when Jim already had a vacation scheduled. So uh, instead of doing something different, we decided to put our heads together and come up with uh, five special episodes for you. I'm actually going on vacation on Friday, so Chad Benson will be in for me on Friday. Jim will be here, and then next week, uh, all sorts of special editions, uh, including one on Jim's forthcoming novel, which you can learn more about in his Twitter feed today, but you'll learn even more uh, from our podcast coming up on Monday. Then we'll look at one year from the... um, Biden debacle on the Afghanistan withdrawal on Tuesday. Um, And then the rest of the week, we'll take a look at where we think the midterms stand and then our two Q&A specials. So that's that's that little note. Uh, Jim, you and I, of course, are uh, big sports fans. And uh, we have lost two sports titans in the past few days. One was Bill Russell, legendary player from the Boston Celtics. Uh, And then last night we lost uh, Hall of Fame broadcaster and probably the best to ever do it. Uh, Some fans in certain cities might have Hall of Fame announcers of their own that they would throw up there. But Vin Scully uh, started with the Dodgers in 1950 when they were still in Brooklyn and uh, went for close to 70 years. Just an absolute treasure of the game. And uh, in addition to doing a great job calling all the big moments and the small moments and his ability to tell stories, uh, it's his ability to surprise you once in a while. And the one that's making the rounds among conservatives today is when uh, a Venezuelan player was at bat. Uh, around the time that Venezuela was uh, falling into absolute ruin thanks to the socialist policies there. And uh, here's how Vince Scully put it. Socialism failing to work as it always does, this time in Venezuela. You talk about giving everybody something free and all of a sudden there's no food to eat. And who do you think is the richest person in Venezuela? The daughter of Hugo Chavez. Hello. Anyway, Owen to. Anyway, Owen too. So, uh, Jim, <laughs> summing it up pretty succinctly there. That's why he's one of the best. Greg, just hearing that, I feel like any message in the world would sound just natural, matter-of-fact, obvious common sense if it came from the voice of Vin Scully. Not only do we need free market policies, a strong defense, and traditional values, it makes absolute sense to make Klingon the official language of the United States of America and a swing and a mess. <laughs> no, he was great. He was just he was just like listening to a friend at, at the ballpark. I'm not uh, a Dodgers fan. I don't have the same experience with him that I had with Harry Carey or my Tiger friends had with Ernie Harwell and so forth or Bob Euchre with the Brewers in the Midwest. But uh, I don't know that there's anybody, especially those who like baseball, that don't absolutely adore Vince Scully. So condolences. Uh, to his family, but uh, glad we could drop that one in there. Uh, Jim, on to our first martini of the day, our good martini. Yesterday we were talking about the double Eric endorsement. 
which honestly is no endorsement at all, even though both of them accepted it on Monday. But uh, the good news is, is that the right Eric won the Missouri Senate primary. Republicans are doing a bad enough job <laughs> hanging on to Senate seats and uh, nominating the right people to try and win back some seats this year. So um, the, the results in Missouri are a welcome change because uh, Eric Schmidt, the state attorney general, not only won, but he won decisively. In a crowded field, he uh, got 45.7% of the vote. Not every vote's in, but it's pretty much where it's going to be. Uh, Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler, uh, less than half of that, 22.1%. And then the one we really didn't want to win this primary, Eric Greitens at 18.9%. Um, and so I think Missouri voters, after making this a dead heat for weeks and really months, in the final weeks of this race, finally uh, looked at the at the landscape and said, look, we can either nominate a really conservative guy who can win this seat easily, or we can nominate a guy who's got more baggage than the major airlines and could give us uh, major heartburn in, in holding on to this seat that we absolutely have to have. So kudos, Missouri voters. Yeah, and I do kind of wonder if there is a little, whether there will be recriminations in the Trump camp uh, Politico had this very interesting article about, I guess, there was a lot of last minute haggling and arguing back and forth about the Trump endorsement. Um, you know, from where I sat and I think from where you sat, Greg, this was a no brainer. Uh, Greitens was a walking liability and embarrassment. Now, his campaign hired Kimberly Guilfoyle uh, as a consultant. And I strongly suspect they did so, hoping that she would be able to secure a Trump endorsement. Uh, this is one of the reasons you probably should not have family in this, because then you end up having your decision of who to endorse swayed by who chooses to hire your family members. Um, this is just not a good. Uh, it, it was like the, you know, the interesting if, if Greitens, uh, you know, look like the likely winner, you could at least say, well, OK, Trump wanted to pick the winner. He didn't want to endorse somebody who was going to lose. He's very protective of his record and his endorsed candidates winning. But the irony is that Greitens was losing ground and he was actually, you know, drifting down into third place and they're finishing a fairly distant third place. So I think there'll be a lot of questions about why Trump chose to, you know, hedge his bets by playing the two Eric's. Uh, had he said Schmidt, he would not only have a strong candidate and another guy who's, uh, you know, won a guy who is pretty much a slam dunk in the general election. Look, there are a lot of times where Republican primary voters have not made the right choice and have put themselves in weaker uh, position for November. I think Pennsylvania stands front and center in this, but there are a bunch of races where you can make this argument. In this one, we have one less thing to worry about, as they sing in Hamilton. Uh, and it looks like, you know, one less uh, seat that could have been competitive is probably going to be staying in the R column, probably by a wide margin. Jim, one other thing that we want to look at. We've looked at a lot of numbers from Missouri. Let's look at another number. New polling shows 65 percent of Americans blaming Joe Biden and the Democrats for rising inflation. Now, if Republicans stand on a united platform to fight inflation, they will do very well in this year's midterm elections. The last thing Republicans should be doing ahead of the midterms is supporting progressive pet projects. Just 1% of voters say they want Congress to focus on tech regulation, while 60% say they want lawmakers to focus on inflation. To win in November, Republicans should listen to the people and fight back against inflationary regulations pushed by progressives. NetChoice urges you to join them in demanding that lawmakers oppose Democrat pet projects like S-2992 and tell Congress to focus on the issues 
that matter most to you. Learn more about this fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org slash 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, Jim, let's move next door to Missouri, over to Kansas now. And they had primaries for a number of things. But the result that's getting the most attention is on a ballot initiative related to abortion. Now, there's a couple of problems here. First of all, the initiative got crushed by about 20 points here. But first of all, here's the language. So whoever wrote this uh, really needs a different line of work. Shall the following be adopted? Because Kansans value both women and children, the Constitution of the state of Kansas does not require government funding of abortion and does not create or secure a right to abortion. To the extent permitted by the Constitution of the United States, the people, through their elected state representatives and state senators, may pass laws regarding abortion, including, but not limited to, laws that account for circumstances of pregnancy resulting from rape or incest or circumstances of necessity to save the life of the mother. One of the things that, uh, in addition to the overwhelming margin here, uh, was the fact that uh, the turnout was significant. According to CNN, the figure that turned out for voting on the amendment, which around 1 a.m. was 869,000 people, interest in the ballot measure also heavily outweighed the other big statewide contests on Tuesday, more than doubling the total votes cast in the Republican gubernatorial primary. So... Jim, the good news is I don't think this is going to be on the ballot in November, so that motivation won't be there. But it's it's a sobering moment, although I do have a bit of a silver lining after I hear what you think of what happened. Some would say 90% of getting a referendum passed or rejected is the wording that is on the ballot. And I think this, I don't think we can say, oh, this is the only reason the pro-choice side won by such a wide margin. But it is kind of this backwards Well, you vote no to keep something in place and you vote yes to allow something to stop happening. You know, it it is this very bizarre. Should it happen or not? (laughs) It's what those people went into there uh, wanting to vote for. That having been said, I don't think you can say that's the only reason this turned out into such a shellacking for the pro-life cause. Look, the the perception in Kansas was that this referendum passing would effectively ban abortions. It would not make exceptions. And that is not where... The people of Kansas are. That's not where the people of a lot of states, including traditionally Republican-leaning conservative red states are. I think pro-life, uh, you know, the pro-life movement is going to have to learn to live, at least for a while, with the types of restrictions to 12 weeks, 15 weeks, you know, things that would represent fairly significant restrictions on the abortion on demand for any reason, any you know, at any time that was the pro v Wade standard for a long period. This would be a big step in the pro-life direction, but people are not going to sign on to a full sweeping uh, abortion ban without exceptions, at least not now. And you got to meet the people where they are. Uh, You know, this is going to uh, sting. My colleague uh, Ramesh, who actually was born and grew up in uh, Kansas, you know, says, look, you know, I think it's been always been a little more perceived to be more pro-life than it is. Uh, But he also thinks that Democrats are going to wildly exaggerate. Uh, or, or, or wildly overestimate the ramifications of this vote. Again, I think the pro-life movement's got to learn to say, okay, what we want, a full sweeping ban of abortions is not where the public is. We've got to enact certain restrictions that they are okay with, and they are okay with second term, third, uh, second trimester, third trimester restrictions. 
um, and learn to, you know, and then see where the, where the culture goes from there. And this, the, the work of public persuasion for the uh, pro-life cause has not stopped. It is not done. And there's, in fact, still a lot of work to be done. No, that's absolutely right. And you're also right about how to take on the issue. And actually, the one who did it well was Trump in that third debate with Hillary in 2016, where uh, she had her talking points all in order. And then Trump started talking about partial birth abortions. And then the whole rest of the conversation was on late-term abortions. And I think Hillary Clinton got smoked on that. And it's one of the reasons why I think a lot of conservatives felt comfortable ultimately voting for him. And, and even people who might not have loved Trump, but uh, you know thought, thought that Hillary was way too far uh, on the radical side on that question. So uh, that's the way to fight back. Make them defend there anytime, anywhere, all the way up to the moment of birth position, uh, rather than uh, some of these exceptions that your colleague Alexander DeSanctis talks about all the time, where Democrats try to pretend that treatment for ectopic pregnancies or miscarriages uh, somehow wouldn't be covered under these laws, because that's just not true. Uh, Jim, one little interesting note, and I'm guessing our friends in the Kansas City area already know this, but I didn't know this until last night because I hadn't paid much attention to the Kansas primaries. The nominee for the U.S. Senate in Missouri is Eric Schmidt. The Republican nominee for governor of Kansas is Derek Schmidt. And so when you're going to be getting a lot of ads about Derek and Eric Schmidt, and uh, as far as we can tell, we prefer you vote for both of them, but uh, you're, going to get, you're going to hear a lot of uh, Eric and Derek and a lot of Schmidt over this next couple months. Just thought that yeah, was interesting. People of Kansas, I know my Schmidt from, from Shinola. <laughs> By the way, one other kind of odd wrinkle in this vote, you mentioned how high the turnout was. As of this morning, a bright conservative who follows these sorts of things wrote in and says, as his count, something in the neighborhood of 100,000 to 150,000 people went into the polling place, voted on the referendum and left Mm -hmm. and did not bother to vote in any of the other offices. So it is both an interesting indicator of how this is a very powerful message to getting people out, but also interesting that a whole bunch of people won't bother to, you know, are not necessarily going to vote for Democrats or not necessarily going to vote for candidates because they're brought out for that issue, which I think is a not the way people are used to thinking. The, the attitude is you get people to the vote into the polling booth, the polling booth, they're going to end up uh, you know, voting up and down the ballot. That may not be the case in this particular issue. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I ran the numbers on this because, yeah, with all these people that showed up for that ballot initiative, a lot of them didn't bother to vote down ballot. So if that issue is not on the ballot in November, that's why I think it's not going to be that damaging uh, to Republicans. For example, in the governor's race, this is roughly, just uh, you know, roughly speaking, about 450,000 people voted in the Republican primary, 276,000 in the Democratic primary, which, albeit, was not very competitive. And then on the Senate side, where Jerry Moran was easily renominated for the Republicans, 463,000 votes. And then for the Democrats, in what seemed to be a pretty competitive primary, just 221,000, less than half, uh, that turned out for the GOP primary. So just because the ballot initiative failed doesn't mean those votes are translating to the Democratic candidates in Kansas, and I would imagine elsewhere as well. So just keep that in mind. CPAC Chairman Matt Schlapp explains why firing Nancy Pelosi and winning the midterms needs to be our white-hot focus, or 2024 might not even matter. I'm Bill Walton. On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, Matt and I also discuss how a small number of leftists are ruining our corporations and institutions and why conservative ideas are better because they work and they make us happy. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And this one's a little more complicated, and this one takes us to the international stage. Yesterday, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi did, in fact, go to Taiwan. Shock of all shocks, the Chinese did not shoot down her plane. 
much as we predicted that they would not. They're just trying to see how much they could either bully her or bully Joe Biden. And and so here we are now. But the issue came up in the White House briefing room yesterday with uh, James Rosen of Newsmax and John Kirby, uh, who seems to be at the podium more and more these days for the Biden administration. Maybe it's just with foreign policy type questions and so forth. But nonetheless, uh, Rosen is trying to understand what the U.S. policy really is on China. And it's not new with the Biden administration. This one China policy has been there for administration after administration. But it seems to be paradoxical. We're on the one side, we say there's only one China, yet at the same time, we're defending Taiwan. So here's how that exchange went yesterday. Admiral, uh, one on uh, Taiwan, if you would, and one on the Middle East very quickly. You keep telling us that U.S. policy hasn't changed and that the United States does not support an independent Taiwan. And yet, if we look at what Speaker Pelosi tweeted from the ground in Taiwan, her post actually states, quote, America stands with Taiwan. We all know that Taiwan harbors uh, ambitions toward independence. When the Speaker of the House says, we stand with Taiwan, America stands with Taiwan, how can the Chinese construe that as anything else but that you're supporting independence? I'll let the Speaker speak for herself. Um, all I can tell you, James, is what I told you yesterday, uh, and I'm happy to repeat it. Nothing has changed about our adherence to the One China policy. Nothing has changed about uh, our stance on Taiwan independence, which is that we do not support Taiwan independence. And nothing has changed, James, uh, about our commitments and how seriously we take those commitments under the Taiwan Relations Act. So some see that as uh, Kirby and the administration throwing Taiwan under the bus, which is understandable if you see how nonsensical this policy is, Jim. It's gone on since the late 1970s, where on the one hand, we're saying that uh, we need to uh, preserve Taiwan as a vibrant democracy that's also part of communist China. So uh, how do we make sense of this? Because it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Well, Greg, for a long time, this policy of saying that the U.S. only recognizes one China, but will not specify whether that China is mainland China or Taiwan, was referred to as strategic ambiguity. And I think we have the ultimate triumph in strategic ambiguity, as it is now too ambiguous for anyone in the administration to actually say what our policy is. It is now ambiguous even to the people carrying out the policy, because Biden himself has said several times he is willing to militarily defend Taiwan from an invasion. And he keeps saying, yes, that's the commitment we made. Now, people keep going back and saying, well, there is no treaty obligation. It's not like they're a member of NATO. It's not like they're a member um, of some formal U.S. alliance. It's not like we've signed a treaty with them on that. Um, technically, we don't even have an embassy there. We have what's called the American Institute in Taiwan. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Now, one of the things that I find is fascinating is you go to this totally not an embassy building, which is at usembassy.gov forward slash Taiwan dash two forward slash, where at the bottom of the page it says this site is managed by the U.S. Department of State, <laughs> you know, state.gov. But it's totally not an embassy, you know. Um, we are come to our entire policy back from the 1970s has been this um, kicking the can down the road, almost playing pretend, right? This idea of we're going to hand wave it away, we're going to have this deliberate confusion, and we're going to paper this over. And basically, our message is Taiwan, please don't declare independence. China, please don't invade. Everybody keep making the stuff you're making, keep making the chips, keep making the stuff we import. 
and everybody live happily ever after. And I don't think this was ever, I mean, you could argue it's a long-term solution in the sense that it has functioned for a couple of decades. And maybe if the Chinese had not become a regional superpower, maybe if they had not uh, become an economic superpower, maybe if they had not been led by Xi Jinping, and if they had different leadership, maybe that status quo could have continued. I think it's safe to say that status quo cannot continue, that there has been this balance, shifting balance of power uh, abetted by multiple administrations and many you know, US uh, economic business leaders and multiple administrations, both parties. Everybody has you know, been quite comfortable watching China rise and believe that they could be a partner in prosperity. Our, you know, by having greater trade, by having more interaction, we will bring our values to there. I actually know in a lot of cases, we brought their values to here to say nothing of the occasional extraordinarily contagious and deadly virus that they bring over to us. Um, U.S. policy towards China in the last you know, three decades, four decades, however you want to characterize it, uh, has been a failure. It has not gotten us where we wanted to go, it has in fact left us weaker and more vulnerable. And we've always had this, this sense like, well, okay, Taiwan is where the Chinese nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek uh, ended up operating. They are the, functionally the free Taiwan. Um, we've always, we've like, they're a small island. They, they've always had this, you know, functional balance of power. And that could the, the you know, uh, communist China take them over? Sure. But doing so would be a bloodbath. Doing so would inflict so much casualties upon the Chinese military that it would be like getting a poison chalice. It would be not worth it. And that has been enough. And that works up until China keeps improving its military and improving its military and getting to the point where I think, well, maybe it wouldn't be such a bloodbath. Maybe we could put some sort of uh, blockade around them, slowly strangle them, and we could make them surrender and be reabsorbed into main China. Uh, or, or maybe we could bomb them into some... You know, we, we don't know exactly what China wants. We just know that China looks at Taiwan as if it has had um, some vital organ removed. That it basically, they are outraged by this. This is a utter humiliation that this much time has passed since the Chinese Civil War and Taiwan is still functionally independent. So this is where we are. I think it is time to recognize strategic ambiguity. If it ever worked, isn't working as well as it used to, and it seems to work less and less. And I think Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, which I think was a good idea, or certainly once China said you can't do this, she had to go. There was no way we could say to China, okay, if you veto this, we won't do it. Um, we end up in a situation where we kind of need clarity. And I think the idea of pretending that uh, Taiwan is not quite an independent country, but not quite a part of China either, and we're just going to be vague and, and, you know, foggy about it, I don't think it works anymore. Um, and I think it's kind of, you know, uh, it would require fresh thinking. It would require a willingness to be more open and more confront uh, and potentially, you know, upset China. Um, nobody's figured out how to handle the big red dragon when it's in a bad mood. And that's what we're going to be facing one way or another for the next couple of years and decades and probably the rest of our lives. So the question is, how do you want to deal with this? Uh, thankfully, we've got an extraordinarily experienced president, Greg, and I'm sure he's got it all under control. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure he does. Uh, I mean, Taiwan was an economic powerhouse long before China rose. I remember as a kid, uh, lots of stuff was made in Taiwan, and it's made a lot better than a lot of the, the toys coming out. Now, my question, Jim, I guess in follow-up to that is, 
are we ever going to get a policy on China right? Remember that most favored nation trading status or permanent normalized trading status or whatever they want to call it, uh, you know, that was supposed to liberalize them. That was supposed to infuse democracy and they were going to become more like us and doesn't appear to have worked in that direction at all. So uh, maybe one of these days we'll get a policy that's effective over there. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I will have a certain amount of sympathy for the uh, China thinkers, the foreign policy wonks, the aspiring secretaries of state in future administrations, because this is a different challenge than the U.S. has ever had. Probably the best comparison is the Soviet Union. But honestly, by a lot of economic measures, the ex-Soviet Union was, was backwards. Its technology was not very advanced. And in the heart of it, you know, Soviet communism just didn't work, right? The moment they allowed people to own a little bit of their land, you know, people spent a lot of time tending to that land and they grow, they own a little bit of land that they would be able to sell the crops from. Well, lo and behold, they put all their efforts into that because they liked being able to sell those crops and make a profit. Um, the Chinese are really, you know, we call them communist China. They still have a autocratic or, or dictatorial rule over the people, but they have just enough free market, just enough blue jeans, just enough consumerism to keep the people relatively happy. Now, they have hit a bunch of economic bumps in the road, and it's fair to wonder whether they'll be able to continue this prosperity. But really, for the last three decades, it has been quarter after quarter of double-digit or near-double-digit gains in their economy, booming jobs and all kinds of manufacturing, all kinds of um, the buildup, the metropolization, the skyscrapers, cranes everywhere. There was a sense that China was a booming country and this is where the future was going to happen. And that if you were a Chinese citizen, you could be proud of that. Right? Now, they may run into trouble with that. It, you know, we've, we've seen this with the COVID-19 shutdowns. Right? Maybe they aren't going to be an economic superpower on the same scale. Maybe their financial part of their economy is built on a uh, house of cards. Certainly, they have all kinds of terrible issues with pollution. Uh, and corruption and mismanagement. And obviously COVID-19 demonstrated that if you have bad news, you do not send it up the ladder. You quickly hide it and you just wanna you know, ignore the problem until it gets too big to, to ignore. Um, they have all kinds of management problems over there. They have all kinds of you know, just basic functioning of government, functioning of society problems over there. They may be weaker than they look, but even with all of that, this is still um, an economically, and I think, um, well, it's just kind of an ideologically confident foe that the U.S. really hasn't faced, uh, certainly not since the Cold War. And, you know, that Cold War generation is retiring and off on the golf course and, you know, uh, and, you know, seeing the end of their days. It's been passed to us who have memories of the Cold War, but we're too young to really play any role in it. Uh, and I think we had a whole generation that has only known the post-Cold War peace and prosperity and really isn't prepared for any type of conflict like this. Yeah, that's that's a problem that needs to be resolved somehow, although I'm not sure how you do it if you can't remember the Cold War. Uh, you can't remember it. But um, yeah, uh, China should have been shunned after Tiananmen Square in a way that would have uh, kept us in the driver's seat of that relationship for much longer than we were. But Nonetheless, we are where we are. So we'll see where it goes from here. Jim, I will uh, talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Uh, please tell a friend about us as well. Thanks also for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. They really do help us out a lot. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday, and please join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Thank you.
This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. This sounds like Belt and Road, and it sounds like the United States at the local level is sort of inviting this granular kind of Belt and Road that's it's off the uh, radar um, of the federal government, off the radar of the media. How does this compare with what China has done in other countries when it comes to Belt and Road? I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.